A quick warning, today's episodes contain some terminology and philosophical concept. Just bear with it and it will soon clear up. Beautiful people, this is Brian here coming at you at Kobochi Sawa in Yamanashi Prefecture, Japan. And if any of you have a chance to come to Japan, do not miss out this amazing, beautiful mountain area of amazingness and this and cafes and all good things. And so today, this is episode 24 of Misfits. And this is where I speak to the rebels, the outliers, the unconventionals in Singapore. I'll try to see things as how they see it and to learn from them. Some of these individuals include Donnie Ng, who won the Grand Bay Box Better Championship twice in a row. Benny Sitio, who's the co-founder of 18 Chef, Adrian Pang, and a whole lot more. And today on the show, we have Tae Geng Soon. He was responsible for many iconic buildings around Singapore, and some of them include People's Park Complex, Golden Mile Complex, and the KK Women's and Children Hospital. He was the president of the Singapore Institute of Architect, the founding member and chairman of the Singapore Planning and Research Urban Research Group, um, the chairman of the substation, and also the founding member of DP Architects. On the side, he is an adjunct architecture professor at National University of Singapore. In this conversation, we spoke about King Soon backpacking experience back in the 1960s before Singapore Airlines was born. Uh, we also talk about him having his encounter with our late uh, Prime Minister uh, Lee Kuan Yew. Um, you would want to check out the story uh, and the relationship between architect, architecture and politics. Boy, oh boy. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tae Geng Soon. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking your time out. I really appreciate this. Um, I saw I've been actually looking at a lot of your work. Firstly, you came highly recommended from uh, Jack. Uh, and, and, and then after going through a lot of your work, I am very excited to speak to you. This is going to be uh, uh, quite a long interview. That's, okay. That's all right. So let's just get started. Um, so when someone will come out to you, say, for example, if they are overseas and they don't recognize you, right? You're overseas and ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? I'm a busybody. Happen to be an architect and are interested in uh, all manner of things. All right. And with every guest on the interview, I'd like to ask them a little bit about their origin story. If you can take a step at describing your childhood growing up, you know, paint us a picture. My earliest memory was... Uh, on December the 8th, when the Japanese bombed Singapore, I was exactly one year old that day. That's my earliest memory. I hear the bombs. Yeah, the whistling of the bombs and then the thud and the, the explosion. And also the smell of the sandbags, the gunny sacks, the smell of that. So that's very, very uh, early memory. Then... Uh, 
biggest influence was uh, going to family evacuate, evacuated to Cameron Highlands. Um, so we, we lived in a house, in a farmhouse. And uh, it was a glorious time. Up over in Cameron? Yeah, up in Cameron. Yeah, uh, very cold and um, very natural. We kids were very free to roam around the house. You know, did a bit of farming. Handled manure with hands. Oh, wow. Yes. And um, there was a Jap- Japanese garrison behind behind the house, a bit further away. And um, there were, you know, good guys and bad guys there, right? So the good guy was the guy who gave us sweets. The bad guy was the guy who beat up the neighborhood. And and these bad guys, were they Japanese? Oh, okay. Um, the... The terrific memory was uh, the punishment meted out to an Indian thief who was caught by the Japanese. And the whole village, neighborhoods, neighborhood was brought around to, to witness the, the, the punishment. And he was severely beaten with a wooden samurai sword. Yeah, and uh, the sound of his uh, chest being like a drum remain in my mind all this while yeah it's terrifying so I mean so it's both uh, a beautiful place that you stay in I mean Cameron Highland at the same time surrounded with this so sense of terror that at any time the Japanese would come in uh, with a just a whip and take anyone to no 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 I mean, no, no, no. Like no, no, no 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 I, I don't I, I don't remember uh, feeling any 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 terror or any fear at all. It was just that uh, the bad guy, the bad Japanese guy, was somewhere in the background. And as long as we did not uh, misbehave, uh, we'd be okay. So I mean, there wasn't a sense of terror or fear that pervaded us. No, not at all. It was a fun time, great time. And. What was under when when did you came back to to Singapore? Forty five. So I left Singapore at uh, age two, came back at age four. Age three or age four, yeah, yeah. And um, again, again, the memory of coming back was very, very vivid. Yeah, uh, we hired the family hired a a truck, and we drove all the way down from Cameron Highlands. Um. I was seated with my grandmother on the roof, rooftop of the of the driver's cab. Yeah, because the, the the truck was driving very slowly. We were swaddled in uh, blankets and stuff like that. It was very cold. And then entering Singapore, very dark. Uh, the scene in my mind is when we arrived at Serangoon Road, where we had a we had a terrace house, row house. We were out. We, our flat was upstairs. Number five five eight A. This is where Little India is right now. No, 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 no. Um, somewhere between New World and uh, and Lavender Street. That row of terrace houses. Yeah. 
very dusty, very dim. There were hardly any street lights. And then going up the staircase into this dusty house that has been left empty all this while. Very strong memory, yeah. Wow. What was the context that you came back? Uh, I mean, under what circumstances? No, the war was over. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, we came back and lived upstairs in this flat. Not allowed to go downstairs. Mother did not allow us to go and mix with all the bad hats downstairs. Though we longed to go down and play, but we could not. So we sat at the windowsill, me and my brother, observing the life, the comings and goings on in the street below. And comparatively, I mean, it seems like you have enjoyed your time over in Cameron more because you were more free. No, I enjoyed my childhood in Singapore too. Yeah. And uh, apart from the restriction from going downstairs, we had a lot of fun in the flat, right? Just climbing up and down the staircases. The, there was a flat roof behind the, the flat, you know? Those flats, the, there was a kind of air well indentation. And there's a flat roof that covered the staircase that went down to the back door, which opened to the back lane. Where... The jamban collectors would come up every morning to take away the pail of shit in the bathroom. Yeah, and, and, and I remember, you know, going to the toilet, looking down into this awful mess, right, with maggots and all. And um, that was just part of life. Nothing, nothing dramatic, nothing un- unusual about it. And you strike me as a person who is very eloquent and very good with words, English. Um, did, was that something that was um, you know, brought up to you by your yeah. parents or was it in school? Yeah, the, the home language was uh, Hokkien and English, mostly English. Spoke Hokkien to my grandmother. Uh, spoke Teochew to the housekeeper, the maid. Um, English was uh, very strongly taught in Anglo-Chinese school in Camp in Coleman Street by a Miss Russell. <laughs> yes, she was a battle axe, you might say. <laughs> but we were drilled in in grammar, in pronunciation in uh, proper sentence construction and so on, you know. So that gave us a very strong foundation in, in the English language. At home, your parents were also, you communicate? We spoke, we spoke in English all the time. Oh, okay. And your, your parents' education uh, in, in English was because of? My mother went to St. Margaret's and my father went to St. Joseph's. But they never finished school because uh, my father's father, my grandfather, died, and the family was in financial straits. They were never, they were never, they were very poor all the, all the while. And um, my mother had to leave school because of the nineteen thirty uh, economic crash, which was a consequence of the nineteen twenty nine financial crisis in the United States, which swept through the world. 
her parents, uh, her father's uh, business completely collapsed. So, so everybody was in bad, bad state. And uh, so uh, they left school early. But they recognize the importance of, of English, hence also use that for you? or Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they recognize the importance of, of, of education. And uh, in those days, uh, my early childhood uh, spent reading because there was nothing else to do. Um, my father had ordered a whole set of children's encyclopedia. So, you know, me and my brother read the whole lot, 26 volumes of it. And uh, also Reader's Digest, we, we, we digested Reader's Digest, which came every month. Yeah. And uh, he also ordered National Geographic. Oh, wow. wow, that really opened our minds to the whole world. So that was early education and radio. Radio was very, very important um, because that that brought out the imagination. You heard the words, but you saw the pictures in your mind. You know, Journey to Space was a fantastic sequel. Yeah, Journey into Space. Yeah. Is there anything um, in terms of um, um, not field of knowledge that stood out to you? when you uh, go through, you know, this wide-ranging uh, topics that you, you read? Sorry, say that again. Is there any um, field of knowledge? I mean, space or, you know, um, science, uh, arts? Science. I think science was very strong. Um, and of course, in school, we, we had to do Shakespeare. We had to do, uh, you know, Charles Dickens. Uh, Tennyson's poetry, yeah. So that was the the dose of literature that uh, I was exposed to. Yeah. What do you choose to be an uh, to study architect back in SP? I I I never had to choose. Oh, okay. I mean, it was the most natural thing for me to do because I was uh, in my teenage years early teens even from... Okay, the family moved from the terrace house in Sangun Road to a bungalow in Bradle Heights. So that was a tremendous uh, change of environment. Uh, Bradle Heights in those days was surrounded by farms uh, and uh, kind of uh, disused or unused scrub land which me and my neighborhood friends and my brother, I mean, that was a great place for roaming around. And I was building three houses. I was building an underground house. Uh, I, I built a, a house uh, using scrap material which the contractors had left behind. Oh, wow. I mean, when we moved into the house, there were other houses around which were still under construction. So, lots of material left around. So, uh, I used to, so it was a very natural thing to, to do, to build. And then, of course, also Mikano, right? Those metal toys, which we could construct bridges, we could construct buildings, we could construct 
anything we wanted, right? We, 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 I never... Mikano. 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 M-I-M-E-C-C-A-N-O. Is it anything like Lego? No. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Better. B- much more uh, basic. Okay. Uh, so there were punch metal pieces of different lengths. There were screws, there were uh, angled junctions, there were wheels, there were gears and stuff like that, right? So we could build a, we could build a, a, a motocar, for example. Oh. Yeah. Out of, out of these metal bits, we could build a, a bridge. So actually my understanding of structure and construction came from there. And also, all, also in in the in the buildings that I was building, right? I remember that um, me and another school friend uh, who used to live in a very big house in Cane Hill. His father was an importer of motocars, okay. and uh, so there were lots of uh, wooden crates that were left left around. So he and I used those crates, and we built an incredibly complex uh, house with all kinds of of ramps and, and, and tunnels and levels, level changes and lookout points and so on. Wow. Yeah, and we built that over over a few months. So it was incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, I never had to choose. Yeah. To me, architecture was the natural thing to and, do. And this Meccano thing, is this, is this a, 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 a toy kind of thing? It's that, a toy, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And they discontinue it. I mean, obviously now you I don't know. I, to... I think you may have a version of it now. But it sounds amazing. This yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. set of uh, yeah, and then of course I, I I never understood the 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 value of this kind of education till many years later. Well, maybe five years ago, I read the uh, Friobel, 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 F R E O B E L, the German uh, uh, educator okay. who invented the Friobel toys which were educational. He felt that uh, children would learn a lot by simply playing with toys. And Fearable is the, the name of the book or the name of the, the author? The name of the person. Okay. But, uh, is there any piece of... Yeah, the, you, can, you can actually buy Fearable toys today. Okay. You go to the Toys R Us and you can get it. And this is the book that, that you read or a research paper or... No, no, that comes to another story which I'm going to talk about Oh, yes. This coming Saturday, right? On education, okay. right? Because I did a whole review of all the educational philosophers. Since we're on the note of education, you know, yeah. let's dive into this a little bit. You were one of the first batch of students to um, study architecture back in Singapore, Poly, when you're still uh, in Prince Edward, Prince Edward Road, Road. <clears throat> right? And graduated in 1964. Yeah. So how was architecture being taught then? And, you know, how, was it, how is it different now? Because now you're an adjunct lecturer in uh, NUS. Uh, well, the the most, I mean, our, the the greatest influence on us was was uh, Lim Chong Kiat, okay. uh, and and I think a very important architect. Uh, but he was also uh, an, an educator. He's ten years older than me. Uh, we are still very much in touch, and. Uh, all my all my classmates in architectural school still consider him as the the great teacher. Yeah, so he was an important influence. But I think 
more than more than that is 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 really an illustration of uh, Lao Tzu's philosophy. You know <laughs> that if you do more, you achieve less. So our school was a mess. We had four heads of department changed very one after another. The curriculum was a complete mess. I mean, with the first batch. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> so we were left very much to our own devices. We fooled around a lot. We had a lot of free time. Um, a lot of time was spent in the Sarabat stall across the Prince Edward Road under the trees where we, were, we would spend lots of time debating and arguing philosophical issues. Yeah. So I was a kind of a evangelical Christian in those days. <laughs> so was that the issues that you were arguing? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. And then um, we all read uh, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Yes. Great book. Yes. And uh, many of us were besotted with those ideas because it fitted with our kind of individualism that was uh, emerging in our younger days uh, and also the kind of anti-establishment sentiment that we all had. But we were also, well, particularly me, was also uh, somewhat of a Marxist. What, how do you find Marxist? Okay. Um, in the last couple of years in Anglo-Chinese school, Barker Road, uh, we had a, 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 a group, a small group of friends who were reading and discussing the Communist Manifesto. Yes. And the leader of this group is a guy called Teo Jin Hong. He's dead now. Uh, decided to form our group and call our group um, the Socialist Club. Okay. <laughs> And the principal, uh, Mr. Tio Chandi, heard about it and called us up said, you better disband your group. Otherwise, I'll sack the whole lot of you. <laughs> so, we, we then decided to disband and then we started a church. We started a church? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, which is now called the Baka Road Methodist Church. Yeah, to which... Uh, Many of the senior uh, uh, bureaucrats in Singapore, like Lim Siong Guan, uh, Ngam Tong Dao, all these guys were all members of this church, right? So in a strange sort of way, the social concerns which we young kids, 15-year-olds, you know, uh, uh, created, has lived on. Uh, and of course, during that period, uh, the group was split between these, those who, were, who had a heightened social conscience, uh, like the, the ex-Marxists, <laughs> and a new group that emerged, uh, which were evangelical Christian, which manifested into two basic uh, movements, the Student Christian Movement and the Varsity Christian Fellowship. Wait, so Marxist, does it mean like... Socialist. Socialist. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, another yeah, word for yeah, socialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, we, we, were not, we were not 
advocating armed struggle or anything like that right. at all, right? Nor were we, nor were we uh, advocating class struggle, right? Yeah. We were just uh, concerned that uh, uh, human you know, social justice and so on should prevail, okay. right? And um, we, we had teachers who were inclined that way I also, right? Um, and uh, I mean, Tio Chambi himself, right? was a member of the Progressive Party, right? And uh, Lim Chun Mong, also another science teacher, was a member of the, I, I, I can't remember, Labour Party? Okay. Could be, I, I can't remember the exact thing. But uh, those were the early days of uh, political uh, ferment in Singapore before the PAP came into picture. So, did you, what did you learn out of your time in Singapore Poly? Because it seems that under the, under the curriculum part, there wasn't much structure. It was a lot of mucking about. And so a lot of uh, learning is actually outside, under the tree. <laughs> well, that, that's a bit of an exaggeration, actually. <laughs> there, there were other things. For example, in the first year, uh, we had to make our own drawing board. Because in those days, there's no computers, right? So all drawings were done by, by freehand drafting. So we had to make our own drawing board and make our own T-square. You know what that what these things are? Uh, some kind of instrument that help you draw. Yeah, the T square is what you slide up and down along a straight edge, and then you could draw absolutely precise horizontal lines, and then you had a set square with with which you could draw vertical lines, right? So that's so uh, learning by doing was a very big part of our early education. We had to build a. a a brick structure for, for an incinerator. So we had to lay bricks. Oh. And we didn't realize how difficult it is because a brick is a three-dimensional object. No? Yeah. That how do you get it to be level, to be in line, to uh, have enough uh, bedding in the mortar, not too much, not too little, and to align with the next block. So these are all very difficult uh, manipulations that we, we, mm. we, we had to learn. And, and so what we learned from that is a respect for, for crafting, for geometry, for, for precision, for accuracy and so on. Um, <clears throat> then in the workshop, I, I learned you know, metal welding. I did uh, uh, wood turning, right? So we were introduced to four cutter machines. How do you make a door jam? running through the four-cutter machine. So all that was very powerful. Then we had very good uh, design exercises. Um, many of the exercises were short exercises. Sometimes one day, sometimes two days, sometimes one week, sometimes one month. So we learned how to think fast, how to, do, how to work fast, right? What were some of these uh, exercise uh, yeah. scenarios? Uh, one of our early projects was uh, to build a f to design and make a model of a fisherman's shelter, right? So you use uh, raw materials. So you went to the. I mean, I was living in a bungalow, right? So <laughs> we could cut leaves and twigs and everything, and use that to build a build build a model of a fisherman's hut. Yeah. Uh, that was one. Then we did. Then another early design was um, design a tourist visiting visitors center. Oh, okay. Yeah, 
So we did that. Then also to design a kampong house. The kampong house was uh, really, a, I, for me, a, a major conceptual moment. My kampong house had a flat roof. <laughs> flat roof. Flat okay. Roof. Why? Yeah. Why? Because I wanted a modern kampong house. You see? And um, it had movable walls which you could open to the to the to the landscape to the airflow. It was raised on stilts. Um, that was that was uh, formative, and in in many ways generative. Because <sighs> how many years later? Forty years later. I designed a tropical city, which was a, a project which was commissioned by the by Mr. Danabalan, who was then the Minister of National Development, who wanted new ideas coming from the private sector and not be completely tied down to ideas that were in-house, HDB, URA. So I generated this concept. Uh, Ah, which is a a, a a quest that that has remained with us since the first year in architectural school. Wow. Yes, and that is what is modern tropical architecture, right? And Lim Chongkat has left that message with us all these years, fifty, 50 over years now. That uh, Western architecture has never dealt with this question. Yes, the British were building uh, buildings in Nigeria and Ghana and Africa and so on. But these were not urban buildings. These were suburban. Right? So all those ideas about you know, sun angles and wind flow and so on. And how would you say that architecture is being taught now in school? Oh, that's a very... Tough question. I mean, I've just written a. a <laughs> I've been writing on this topic for well, maybe twenty, thirty years. And um, the latest uh, uh, essay, which I wrote as a draft, which I sent to the coordinator for the first year program, uh, which he has agreed to host a, a discussion with all the tutors and the students on it. It's very, very fundamental. A lot of things have happened. Meanwhile, the, the, the kind of life that we lived as young, young students and uh, young architects is quite different from what they, what they experience now. Before when you were then yeah. SP. So, so the starting point in my thinking about architectural education today is you have to start with what is the nature of the world today? And, and also, what is the nature of our students today? Could you, could you just sort of give me a rough understanding of how it's being taught now? I mean, also for the read. The students are... Uh, that, the, well, let, let me just talk about design because okay, there, are, sure. there are other things, right? Go for it. In, in design, they are... They are there's, there's a kind of implicit indoctrination going on, although this will never be admitted to. What do you mean by that? Okay. For example, uh, from first year, they make models. 
And the models are always for convenience and they never really think about it. It's made up of uh, cardboard and uh, foam, foam, foam panels. So the implicit assumption there is that buildings are made out of, of flat planes, like this, wall planes. When I know that tropical architecture is not generated by the wall, tropical architecture is generated by the roof, there actually should be no walls. All walls should, be, should not be celebrated as uh, uh, planar enclosures. They are operable. They should be operable. They should be uh, uh, as permeable as possible, okay. right? For, for for all kinds of weather, so, like weather right, to come right. in and yeah. out. So so the implicit assumption is walls, right? Which is the kind of language of modern architecture derived from Western experience, where you needed to have a absolute enclosure because of the differences between summer and winter, right? So. But that's not, not even made conscious. It is implicit. Yeah. It is indoctrination without intention. So this is some of the conventional wisdoms that has Indoctrination been. without intention. That's exactly the problem. And it's very difficult to get it across to the tutors because they themselves are indoctrinated. <laughs> and they are not aware of it. You see, so this is the problem. So it's going to be a long way to to work it out. And our our students today are very anxious about their future, right? Like everyone else. <laughs> yes, more so than our time, because I think in our time we 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 uh, coming from the middle class. I mean, we could see a uh, we were not we were not uh, 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 overly concerned about our future. Okay. Okay. Today they are because the uh, competition for jobs and, and, and very great. By our future, you mean job security, how much you can pay, and how yeah, much money do I need? Yeah, yeah, in those days, we didn't even think about such things. Yeah, right. I mean, it was uh, you know, so what? We just get 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 on with life, you know. Today they have to think about such things. Yes, and uh, I think the fear factor is weighing heavily on them. So, I teach uh, all these years. I can see the decline. Decline what? Decline in uh, in um, uh, ambition. Um, you know, ambition in the largest sense of it. That ambition to to uh, to find new things. To ambition to realize uh, potentialities uh, uh, untapped in in the social and cultural and, and environmental realities. Right? Because they are caught up they, in, they, they, in they this are very future. They are very conventional because it is rational to be conventional. To mm. be conventional is to succeed in life. Mm. That's the culture we have created. Yeah. Um, actually, I would like to dive into uh, a little bit more about some of the, um, what you like to call it, indoctrination without intention. Yeah. Are there any other things you'd like to bring up in, in in, in that sense, in you know, the circle of either architecture or life in general or, you know, education. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> there's a whole ecosystem that, that has been, that's the only way to describe the, 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 the way uh, 
the forces of society, economics, politics, weighs upon the individuals and the communities, right? So it's a, it's a whole construction of uh, moving parts that drive people in certain directions. What are these moving parts? Uh, money, acceptability, success, social acceptability, right, and so on, right? So people are very worried. Are there any... They are, okay, go for it. They are, they are worried without being conscious of being worried. That's how deep the indoctrination has become. It's become the very air that you breathe. How... Are there any exercises or questions uh, one should consider to know if they are in that cycle? When you have a when you face a big crisis, so usually, well, well, the crisis could be external or internal. External crises are usually induced by massive uh, uh, social unrest or economic unrest. But fortunately, we have a very able government. Well. Who have who has cushioned us from these extreme experiences? So therefore, the the uh, pre- the pressures are internal. Okay, what are these? Um, let me describe it. I mean, usually people understand this as you know, uh, a midlife crisis and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And I think those are quite real. Um, but let me explain. I try to understand the, the internal dynamics of, of, of this, this kind of crisis. Why, where, what, what drives it? Right? So I've written about this. Let me explain it this way. When we are born, we are in a state of undifferentiated consciousness. So we feel the warmth, we feel the light. The Greek word for this is Noia. Noia. N-O-I-A. A state of un a state of undifferentiated consciousness or a state of bliss. Okay. That's that state of bliss is interrupted when uh, the undifferentiated consciousness begins to be differentiated. So the, the first differentiation is the is the differentiation between self and mother, okay, or self and the and the and the crib, self and the pillow, self and the blanket, self and the bed, self and the room. So those are the differentiations that immediately follow very rapidly from the first differentiation. Thereafter, the differentiation explodes into a differentiation of the world as objects, world as sensations, world as uh, uh, threats and and uh, and, and uh, joys. That's knowledge. So, in the dif- undifferentiated state, the the self is in the center of the being. Okay? 
in the differentiated state, the self moves to the edge of being. Which by definition is therefore paranoia. Okay, and so by knowing this... Okay, hang on. Paranoia yeah. is... Of course, the kind of paranoia I'm talking about does not amount to clinical paranoia. It is simply the condition of existential anxiety. Since you do not know what you do not know, and you want to know what you do not know, you are in a state of ang anxious search. That's midlife crisis. Then. Oh, that is the extreme case. Right. Now, as, 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 this, uh, uh, undif uh, as this differentiation goes on, which is knowledge, school, learning, blah, 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 mm -hmm. the, the self in, a, in its state of, 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 of existential anxiety builds up around it, itself a constructed self as a defense against the anxiety, against threats that may emerge from, from the external world, right? So therefore, the constructed self is the artificial self. It is the, the presentation of self to oneself as well as to others. So you fake it all the way. This is the human condition. It is the condition of immaturity. Okay. So the first crisis occurs when the individual becomes aware of this false construction and okay. is therefore, ask, therefore asking of himself or herself, what is the authentic self? The authentic self having been artificialized all this while. Now, right. so, some young people achieve maturity that is the, the state of self-awareness mm -hmm. earlier. Some never achieve it at all. Okay, so I really want... So that's one, one thing I want to dive deeper into, which is, you know, now that maybe they are aware that they are immature, what are some things that they can do right now that to, to achieve uh, maturity, like in, in your context. And also, before I we dive into that question, for those of people who want to learn a little bit more or into what you talk about, what books should they be reading? Or <laughs> It seems like a collective uh, uh, knowledge that you have gathered and, and stringing into words. But if there's another, any, any philosophy that one should dive deeper into to, to, to know what you're talking about, and I'm asking this question also for me. <laughs> uh, there's a lot, but uh, you, you, have to, you have to find the pieces together. You have to stitch the pieces together wow. because each person's uh, uh, existential anxiety is constructed differently. No, no, but I mean just on the topic of what you say, like existential crisis and the, the, the idea of self and constructed self. Um, what are some books or philosophy that one can dive deeper into? Okay, before we go there, yeah. yeah. Let, let's talk about how this, how this constructed self is maintained. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I, I actually want to move on because we have a lot to get, get through. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to leave the reading to, to, to later on if anybody want to dive in, into because No, no, I'm not going to talk about reading yet. I'm okay. talking about how, how does this, 
How does this constructed self persist? Okay. Internally, it persists because you want it to persist, because you are afraid of the, the truth about yourself. Okay. But externally, the conditions are unfavorable. Why? Because they have been made that way. Why is it made that way? Okay. The condition of, of I, I would call protracted adolescence is manufactured okay. by the marketing industry because the construction of self deep relies on the acquisition of status symbols. All material goods. Material goods, status symbols. Mm -hmm. And this, is, this serves very well uh, uh, corporate uh, enterprise, yeah. corporate business, yeah. right? So you need a Lanvan shirt because if you don't have one, you are not with it. Okay. You see? I don't know Lanvan, right. but sure. I whatever, know, right. something that's or, expensive. Or if, you sure. don't, if you don't have a... If you don't have a Lamborghini. This, uh, yeah, then you really are a failure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so right. these are the, these are the, the, the accoutrements yeah. by, by which the economy ensures that you remain immature. No, but I, I understand this and, and that's what has came up with a lot of, uh, in a lot of talks with a lot of uh, my interviewees before. But one thing, one piece of the puzzle I haven't figured out is, you know, what can people do to sort of desensitize or distance themselves from that? Or, I mean, maybe, maybe the first step of that is being self-aware. Yeah. So are there any things, that, the questions that you ask themselves or activities that you do? Uh, for me, I highly recommend uh, just traveling, uh, long-term travel, um, being one of the activities to do. No, consumption is, uh, is, the, is, the, is the opiate. It's the, it's the opium that keeps you dumb. So should we just not consume? So traveling is just another form of consumption. Okay. Right? However, uh, being in a different situation may offer you the chance to self-reflect. So self-reflection is more the key. Self-reflection is the key, yes. Uh, but but, but self-reflection is very easily uh, 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 diverted or distracted. So reflection with uh, a, a, a guided reflection. Yeah. Okay. So, so chance encounters with... Uh, with enlightened people, chance encounters with uh, uh, surprising experiences yeah. do help. Well, hence, they are listening to this uh, podcast, uh, then maybe they can get some of your enlightenment. Yeah, but I'm not so hopeful because, <laughs> 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 because the human mind, the human being is so incredibly capable of self-justification. No, you're right. You're right. So, so <laughs> intelligence is used uh, very effectively to delude oneself. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and coming back a little bit to, um, I think, modern days of uh, education, I think we have pointed out a lot about what's lacking. But what do you think has improved? Ah, this is a very strange thing, you know. What, what, why is it strange? <laughs> what has improved is the, 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 the easy availability of tremendous amounts of knowledge and, and information. But equally, because it's so easy to get at 
you can always defer it, you see. Right, I'll, so I'll look into it another time. I'll look, at, yeah, I'll, I'll look into it another time. Okay, oh. sure. <laughs> and after, so after graduating from SP in 1964, you went to work a little while. Uh, where, where was this? Is it the Malayan... Malayan Architects Co-partnership, co-partnership yeah. right? Um, and then, uh, I think uh, there's somewhere I was reading through, you say that uh, this was not enough for you. And, 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 and you then... Um, left on to to do your own self-exploration. So why why do you come to that sort of conclusion that, you know, the experience or the education isn't enough? No, I wanted to see the world. Oh. Right? So I went on a round the world jaunt. And would you say that this is because of the inner wanderlust? Just curiosity, that's all. Okay. No, because yeah. I, I did the same. I, I went, you know, yeah. a, a gap year before, uh, after yeah. the army. Yeah. I think... Quite important. Mm. Yeah. I think all our students should have a gap year. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a, a little bit of a side turn. Um, I'll ask you that. What do you think does architecture mean to your student when they come to NUS? The word architecture. Means funny design. Yeah. The funnier the better. The, that's part of the indoctrination, you see. Why would they, would they, would they think that? What is their, what's their Because they've been looking at pictures and, and uh, images, right? And uh, I may give you an example. Okay. The, this, this, what is this? What, what? The interlace. It's a big influence on our The interlace. The interlace. Is that a building or? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that block of flats in, uh, 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 Oh, the pinnacle. Uh, uh, yeah, no, no, not pinnacle. Uh, interlace. In, interlace. Uh, uh, Alexander. Alexandra Road. Okay, I don't know. I'll look yeah. it up. I'll link it up. No, all these Lego blocks that are stacked. Yeah, I saw that. that they want some award. Oh, oh they love it. They love it because <laughs> love that it. is what architects architecture should be all about. Why? Why do they think that? Because it's it's, it's Lego, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they should be playing the toys that you were playing instead of Lego. That's the problem. Uh. That's the problem, right? Exactly. So I did an experiment with my fourth-year students. I asked them to analyze the structure. How does it actually stack on top of each other? What happens to the, the columns? Do, do some columns go through some bedrooms? Because when you stack, you're right, the, the column has to go through, right? They never thought of it. And columns, by actually column, you mean the big, the big pillars, pillar. the pillars, yeah. 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 The pillars. No, I'm trying to make this easy to understand because yeah, the pillars, right? Here, yeah. All right. So the beams are the horizontal structures, yeah. columns are the other vertical. vertical ones. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They never thought about it because the image is so uh, captivating, it's so uh, you know important. They never look further. See. So this tells me something. This tells me something. It tells us something. That image becomes everything. The culture of image is what's gripping the world today. Right down to the village. Okay. And I think actually, you know what? I think Jackson used that very well as uh, you know, one of his... his, uh, his um, Persuasion or yeah 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 he wants to you he, he wants to have the image of a of a wonderful toilet, <laughs> but you know there's a very powerful uh, uh, lecture by Chris Hedges, 
And how do I spell Hedges? H-E-D-G-E-S. Okay. Chris Hedges. He's an American uh, intellectual. He used to, he spent 20 years as a war correspondent. Okay. So he's seen the worst of human situations. And um, he, his early education was, he was training to be a priest in a seminary, right? So he's a very conscious person. The lecture is on, is called, uh, is on YouTube. Okay. One of the things people must see. Okay. Must see. Must see. It's called The Empire of Illusion, which describes the, the world we live in and how we are indoctrinated. Great. How about, conversely, what do you think does architecture mean to you at your current season of life? Architecture as individual buildings is, to me, rather stupid. Okay? So, that's a kind of a disavowal of my my professional com, uh, uh, orientation, okay? To and me, this about, uh, I, 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 I reject it. Okay, okay. Your English is too good. I need to clarify sometimes. The, Pardon the, me. The important thing today is not the individual building. The important thing today is the way uh, buildings form together into a living organism. That means the neighborhood, the design of the neighborhood, then the design of the city. Okay, this is this is where we need a major uh, overhaul of thinking. Uh, buildings are designed or thought of. Cities are thought of as mechanisms, well-functioning mechanisms, right? Where when in fact they should be thought of as living organisms. The difference between a mechanism and an organism is that an organism is, is capable of processing information. A mechanism cannot. Right? A mechanism only carries out the instructions that are assigned to it. Okay? A me- uh, organism. A, organism is able to uh, process huge amounts of experiential data, information, and transmit and produce new information. So, I mean, let me get this right. So you would say that architecture meant to you as a design of a city, uh, more so more than a design of a singular building, but also how that works together as an organism rather than mechanism. Well, let's, 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 let's be clear about this. Okay. Let's take a typical HDB estate. An HDB estate is a well-functioning mechanism okay. uh, in which the designers and the, and the policies, administrative uh, uh, policies embedded in the design mm-hmm. and management of the, of the neighborhood of the, of the HDB estate ensures that there will be no conflicts. Uh, that... Uh, Schools are kept away in quiet areas so that students don't get disturbed by the, by the hum and hustle and bustle of the city, of the place, and therefore can concentrate on their studies. Okay? And that uh, housing neighborhoods are uh, compact so that uh, they can access to the various facilities well and so on. In other words, livability is very high. Yeah. But yeah. intelligence is very low. Mm. That's the problem. Okay. How do you increase the intelligence? You must build in the nervous system. Okay. 
I'm going to give another side turn again. Um, as an architect, um, it's, a, it's a really tough trade, you know, it's a tough profession because it requires firstly the one to put in long hours at work and also uh, dedicating a big part of their life to, you know, getting that accreditation. So what are some questions one should ask themselves to determine if they are a right fit to be an architect? It's so different for very for everybody's different, right? Sure, but maybe some questions to to pose uh, to them. To be in, uh, I mean, uh, let me let me address the young young people because they are the ones that yeah. that are so twenties much more concerned about this, right? To The profession has 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 in many ways ossified. In in the sense that it has uh, congealed into several uh, uh, very powerful uh, practices. These are big practices. Yeah. So you mean the four different yeah. big, the big four or the big four whatever. Okay. And then there are hundreds of little ones. Okay. Independent, okay. Independent uh, architecture firms. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm translating it to English That's as right. we speak. Yeah. <laughs> so, a young young person aspiring to be an architect must ask themselves: What do you want to do? What do you, where do you want to go? Do you want to go and join a big firm, big four, which in which case you will just be a cog in a wheel, right? Uh, you will have uh, if you are hardworking and uh, skillful, you will have. Uh, a good life. But forget about the trying to change the world. <laughs> okay. If you are a young, if you join a young, a small little practice that, that is building houses and small, small buildings, yeah. uh, also forget about changing the world. So you can forget about In changing other words, the world totally. forget about changing the world. <laughs> You are you're just a, a a cog in a wheel, uh, either a cog in a big wheel or a cog in a small wheel. Okay, that's so your choice. Firstly, forget about changing the world. Yeah, but if you are really serious about changing the world, oh, there you go. <laughs> which means that you are you recognize in yourself. Creative impulses and social impulses, cultural impulses, which you must fulfill, then you have to become a very knowledgeable person and a very strategic person. What do you mean by strategic? That means you got to see the big picture all the time as you, as you focus on the small picture. Mm. So the relationship between the small picture and the big picture you must be uh, you must be very capable so the macro oh, and the micro you must be able to rapidly sp- scan through the different scales of involvement or or problematics that you will face that means you have to be really educated okay okay so let's bring it back to the question so if 
Um, so the question is, what are questions that they should ask themselves, you know, before committing this long amount of time to get aggregate, uh, accredited? So firstly, you need to know that uh, well, you won't be able to change the world. Or maybe you do, then you can no, 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 really no, no, put no, in a lot. First, you have to decide whether you want to or not. Or you want to change the world or not. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. If, you, if you say, no, I don't want to change the world, then okay. No problem. Carry on. <laughs> Carry on, sergeant. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But if you, you see, want to change the world... Uh, then you have to become very high, highly educated. Okay. So, um, uh, don't want to change the world, you mean by you're fine with being a small cog in a, in, in, in a big wheel or being a small cog uh, in a small firm. Small wheel. Small wheel. Um, so, those are, are people who don't want to change the world. So, let's talk about people who want to change the world, right? You talk about macro being strategic and micro, you know, yeah. uh, the, the, the things to do and having detailed steps. So, let's say an individual, like uh, you have a, 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 a niece uh, that come to you uh, and say, hey, I really want to change the world. I, I'm, I, I have I, never come across such a person, no. Oh, well, well <laughs> let's just say there is. And then, and then uh, I say, uh, King Soon, Uncle King Soon, I have 10 years. I want to dedicate 10 years of my life I want to make this 10 years, or I mean, let's just say, I don't know, do you think 10 years is a good amount, or 7 years, or 5 years? I don't know. Okay, let's say, let's give an arbitrary number of 7 years. Um, I want to change the world. What, in this 7 years, what are some strategic moves that I should take on, and skills that I should learn, or experience that I should have, uh, in order to be a person, maybe an architect, that have the possibility of changing the world? Well, listen to Gandhi, right? You want to change the world, change yourself first. So that is the, 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 that's why I say get educated. You cannot change anything if you are not, not smart enough. Okay. And, and is there any specific thing? Like, I mean, obviously, you say this school is not very good. Is there any specific things that they can do? Like, this is the school, go there, and this is the person, and this is what you should learn. There's no school that's good enough. Okay. Right. It, 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 it's the, the only school that's good enough is the school of life. Right? The, the formal education that you get is only uh, a small part of that. Right? Um, strategically, yes, you need the piece of paper. So get it. In between doing that, is there any other thing that they... Then, then, but, but, but while you're getting it, get smart. How does one get smart? Know yourself. How does one know themselves? Introspection. Uh, right? Uh, test yourself. Put yourself at risk. And then, uh, and then see how you react. Right? Make friends with people you don't like. Right? Help the poor. Because in doing so, you will learn aspects of reality which you, which, which you do not know in your own personal comfort zone. Right? In other words, if you don't take risks, you will never learn about yourself. And this is very general, right? I, I mean, I, I, I kind of want to give people some actionable things that they can, you know, do. I mean, of course, getting an education is just needed. You just need that uh, as, as, as a baseline to jump off from. Um, well, sure, helping the poor. Are there anything else that come to mind in this strategic 
seven, eight years that they have. Okay. There are the seven seas which I... Uh, yeah. You have to sail the seven seas. Okay. <laughs> but actually what I'm more interested in is how do you acquire the seven seas, which is... Okay, step by step, right? The first C is confidence. And where does confidence come from? Confidence comes from skill. Just think about it. It's physical. Okay? When a child is born, it lies, on the, it lies in a crib, right? What does it... What is the next thing the child does? Try to turn over, right? It's bodily. It's controlling the body, right? Organizing the muscles and the, the, the geometry of turning around. And then the next thing is he wants to crawl. Why does he want to crawl? Because it is, it is an impulse. Respect that impulse. Then he wants, to, he wants to stand and he wants to walk. And then he wants to run and then he wants to jump. Okay? So, physical uh, uh, development, the skilling of the body is the first, is the foundation for confidence. Testing the body, you know, through uh, uh, physical uh, yes. hardships, hardships, challenges, is a very important part of confidence building. Then other, other kinds of confidence of thinking, confidence of feeling, confidence of relating. All of these confidences build up the overall confidence of the person. Then you get courage. Right? And with courage, then you dare to ask difficult questions. Which is curiosity. Curiosity. And then with curiosity, you can then become creative. There's no creativity without curiosity. And then... Explain, dive in a little bit more about that, the relationship between curiosity and creativity. Yeah, because you ask uh, 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 difficult questions, uh, therefore you, you are impelled to find answers. Okay, and as you find more and more answers, you begin to join the dots, right? And as you and the and the process of joining the dots is the creative process, right? So you realize things that uh, are not commonly realized, and in that way, you become empowered. And because you are empowered and confident, then you can have compassion. Because if you do not develop compassion, then if you stop there at creative creativity, you can be a very good crook. I think I really... I think what's really missing when I first read about the seven C's is that I didn't, I never knew it's linear. It's linear. And uh, now that now that you say it, because whenever uh, I run the problem, whenever you try to 
to give someone a whole lot of information, try to get them digested. And then uh, they, they, they just stuck with too much information to digest. Yeah. But now that you say that it's linear, uh, it's yeah, it's easier to follow. Yeah. Yeah. And then with the compassion, then you can be very collaborative. And uh, this is where Jack has added commitment. Commitment. Yes. Yeah. Then you are really, you are really on the way to changing the world. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's go back a little bit uh, back when you um, did SPUR, which is Singapore Planning and Urban Research Group. Yeah. That's in the 1960s. Yeah. Um, why, why was that? Uh, why would you start a SPUR? And I guess the follow-up question would be, what are some ideas that you have during that time? Go ahead. <laughs> Lots of ideas, but uh, just to illustrate the the impact of those of those uh, activities in Spur, yeah. we moved the airport from Paleba to Changi. Maybe you can explain a bit also about. Spur. Okay, it was Spur was a group of uh, idealistic architects um, who wanted to change the world, mm-hmm. starting with changing Singapore. Um, and then uh, it then attracted to its to its uh, core group, which were architects, uh, academics from political science, from sociology, from geography. Oh, okay. So it's not only just not not, not just architect, yeah. And so we became a, a very collaborative group, right? So kind of like a think tank, think tank, and and we 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 kind of learn from each other. And, and our conceptual ability became much more comprehensive, much more knowledgeable. Yeah. And of course, we run into the bang into the government, right? And um, I guess now I know what that is for. Uh, why, why did you guys started it? And, you know, uh, how has that helped Singapore? I mean, I'd like to go into a little bit into the details of it. So how do you guys run this meeting? Is this people just like bring up problems or, you know, is there a, a group chart of problems and then you discuss it one by one or you rank it first? What is, what is it like? Well, because there's never ending problems. Always The first year was devoted to uh, self-education. So we divided the group up into uh, different topics, right? Um, Housing. I, I was uh, looking at industrial development, uh, recreation, uh, traffic planning, transportation, nature, urban conservation, and so on. So these were all the different topic areas. Uh, one important topic area was the decision-making process in, in itself in, in, in planning, the structure of planning. So... After that one year, we all felt much more confident in uh, thinking through some big issues of our Singapore environment. For example, uh, I was very critical of uh, the lack of housing housing provision within the Jurong Industrial Estate. Um, so I was arguing for a lot more public housing to be built in, in Jurong. There were plans, but I think uh, 
our public pronouncements on it could have contributed to the acceleration of those plans. Um, on transport planning, we were rather critical of the government coming down hard on pirate taxis. Pirate taxis. Yeah. These were uh, owners of vehicles who were plying along the main roads, picking up uh, passengers along the way. They were doing a good job. But uh, the government cracked down on it. And so we argued against the crackdown. We're saying that, yes, there are, there are issues involved like insurance, uh, like uh, maintenance of the vehicles and so on. So our argument was regularize it. Okay? So ironically, 50 years later, we have Grab and we have uh, Uber. <laughs> Which they're still trying to wrap their head around, uh, yeah. uh, trying to form policies yeah. around it, right? Um, actually, so you talk, you bring out the topic that I'm very, very interested about, which is the the decision making process or framework around yeah. uh, this planning. What can you, can you, I mean, just share a little bit about that um, body of knowledge that you have, you guys have researched and acquired uh, then? Yeah, <clears throat> the the problem then was, uh, and I think to some extent still is the case. Uh, HDB was the the principal driver of physical development because uh, housing was a prior, was a was a social and political priority. Uh, town planning was a department which was uh, rather ill ill equipped and also uh, not very. High up, high up in the, in the, in the administrative hierarchy. And then URA, at that time was URD, which is Urban Renewal Department, was a department within HDB, right? Um, so the coordination between these three agencies uh, was very poor. And then on top of that, uh, JTC, PUB, PWD, they all had their own architecture and planning departments. Oh. Yes, and they were doing their own thing. Okay. <laughs> They're more nimble. Maybe. But coordinate, coordinated planning was, was weak. It is very ironical that I'm now coming back to that question, you know. And I'm but at that time, we were saying that we, the, the, the planning department should be planning authority. Should, planning department should become a planning authority. So like and the, therefore, it should be the coordinating institution the for umbrella. All, the, all the other things, right? Ah, okay. That was my view in those days. And I think that view uh, eventually became the URA. Okay? And uh, so the, the mechanization of the environment was put into high gear. Yeah, and so we have the Singapore which we know today. I'm now reviewing that. I'm arguing a different case. What was I'm it? saying that uh, the, 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 the decision-making process, not only on physical planning, has been so centralized, yet departmentalized. Right? 
what do you a, mean by that? A, okay, so you have different departments like EDB, JTC, you know, URA, HDB, all these departments like PUB yeah. and so on, right? But they all come under ministers who are represented on the cabinet. So that's a pyramidal structure, right? And um, there are institutional and uh, departmental imperatives that operate um, I suspect meaning each of them have their wants and needs yes um, there is a there is a consensus culture that has emerged out of this okay now this is where there's a, I interview an, an, a, a, a very senior retired civil servant who told me it's a very interesting thing that Dr. Go was the principal, Dr. Go Kingsley, yeah. the minister for uh, um, minister for the economy, oh. minister of finance, yeah, yes. uh, was a very powerful mover. Okay. okay. And uh, he used to ask uh, various bureaucrats to write position papers on, on all manner of things. He was a very curious guy. Okay. Yeah. And I, he's, the, he's the one I have the greatest respect for. Yeah. And uh, his instruction is this. Not more than three pages. If it's more than three pages, I throw away. Why is that so? If you, can, if you cannot condense your thoughts into three pages, that means you are not clear what you're thinking about. I have no time for you. Wow. So they all wrote three pages. Wow. And then when he looked at it and says, yes, I know this is your department's point of view. What is your point of view? If you don't have a point of view or a minority point of view, I'm not interested to talk to you. Oh, actually, uh, what do you, what do you, uh, would you like to elaborate on that? You mean the department point of view versus the self point of view? Yeah. So, so let's say you are in the traffic planning department. Okay. So traffic planning department obviously have done research and uh, statistics and everything. And this is the position this department takes on this issue. Right? Dr. Go will say, then what's your view? If you don't have a view of your own, I'm not interested to talk to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> why, why, why is that so? So thereafter, uh-huh. right, these three pages always contain a section of minority views. So it's like a subsection. Yeah, minority views. Okay. Um, Dr. Go would tell these uh, uh, bureaucrats, I want you to go to the ground and talk to people on the ground and get everything that they know so that you know what they know. And then tell me. Okay. You see? Yeah. If you don't do that, you're not doing a job. And is, is, is this different from the self that means the writer point of view versus the, the ground point of view? Is that two sections or is it all combined to this minority section? The minority section would include all these other views, which also, are... a lot of subsections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, so that, this is part of the culture in those days, you know, where there was debate, there was a, a contestation of ideas and, and, you know, thinking out of the box and so on. Today, it's all consensus. Mm. Right, so this is the problem. So, so facing. So, I think because of this, Singapore is in a in a in a, in the doldrums. Intellectually and uh, conceptually, we are in. We are in the doldrums. Yeah. 
um, I really like that uh, uh, Doctors Go uh, three-page yeah. uh, framework uh, in getting information. Lee Kuan Yew was even worse. Oh, one, page. one page. One <laughs> page. So one basically, Doctors Go will, will cut it down to one page. <laughs> give to Lee Kuan Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that's, I always wonder how do they consume so much information? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's because when they get it, it's already yeah. condensed. And then as uh, Ngam Tong Dao says, right, in those days, cabinet, dis- cabinet meetings were, were rambunctious. They were arguing. <laughs> so there was this contest of ideas, you know. Yeah. Today, according to, to Ngam, uh, who got scolding for it, because... Uh, PM Lee says, how do you know that there is no discussion, there's no rambunctious discussion? How do you know? You don't know. You're not there. <laughs> You're not there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think looking from the outside, I think we can sense that uh, there is a kind of a, a, a deferential culture of, yeah. uh, of agreement. You know? So there's a lot of uh, echoing. It's an echo chamber. Mm. So my proposal now is that we should divide the whole island into five parts. With five governments. You mean geographically? Yes. <laughs> Which is already there. But we should, we should turn it, we should develop from there. We have the five CDCs, right? Northeast, Southeast, South... Central Development... Uh, co- community Development Councils, yeah, okay. right? With their own mayors, right? We have, we have the five, right? And the Central CDC. Turn them into uh, administrative uh, districts. So, in each of them, you have a URA, HDB, you know, a whole lot of them. Oh, Let wow. them compete. So, you have uh, five ministries of education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So, each, five of, each of the five uh, would, would, be, would be driven by the ground conditions and also conceptual conditions, right? In, through which they would then propose and administer... Uh, uh, appropriate mm. uh, uh, policies yeah. and, 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 and methodologies. Mm. And may the, may the best one win. the best one win. Yeah. So, if you are a parent and you realize that, hey, Saudi CDC schools are much better, I send my children there. Right, then everyone moves. All right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's a, I think that's an idea. That's an idea for for, and and that means uh, the tremendous build up of local capability. Yeah. Right. Which is which which I think has to be a mix between private sector and and, and public sector. Mm. Right. So the 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 let's say the 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 northeast CDC's HDB. Yeah. Right. Would be a a a a, a conglomeration of the talent, the design talent, the planning talent of that area. Mm. So young graduates from, from, from our schools and so on would have a choice of where to work and make contributions to the real welfare of Singapore instead of just becoming a cog in a wheel. What are some beliefs that you hold dear before that don't matter to you that much now? Don't know, man. <laughs> 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 it's throwing out there. 
Um, I think if, 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 even if I were to actually answer this question, it would be it would be quite hard. I mean, to to reflect on, but it's just something that I um, personally would love to do, just to map out my personal belief, and uh, uh, in a I don't know what kind of system to do that, but you know it would be an interesting thing, and to review it every year and swap in and out uh, uh, ideas and do like. Uh, do this brain mapping sort of like a mental capture of how your brain works and then every year and see how the change it's like a big project though <laughs> I don't know I don't know what 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 that's, what what's that, what does that entail I don't know <laughs> I think what it entails for me is that firstly it, it actually irons out a lot of cognitive bias or, or, or you know um, um, how do you say um Things that are uh, facing each other that we haven't get to to ask when we do this exercise, um, and then when a new idea comes into the picture or a new concept um, uh, that needs to fit in beautifully with this ecosystem of uh, uh, belief or ideas that, that I have. Uh, just uh, you're extra. talking about yourself. I'm talking about myself. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is not about me. This interview is about you. So. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and we are only just and only barely finished first page. Oh my god. Okay, we might need to come back to do a round two. Um, let's go back a little bit uh, on, on on traveling. So now we're still in the 1960s. Oh my god, uh, which is almost uh, what 60 years ago. How was that experience? You know, did you did, did you fly? You know, back then there wasn't Singapore Airlines. You know, how was it? No, I, I bought a KLM t- ticket around the world. And in those days, uh, as long as you move in one direction, you can change your flights back and forth. So you can zigzag, zigzag like that around the world. Right, for the same price. Cool. Yeah. What, what was the price of the, I mean, if you remember? $10,000. And $10,000 is, is back it then was a equivalent to... So I, I had to borrow the money to travel. Yeah. To like, I don't know, 50000 would you say? Like now? Mm. Wow. Yeah. But you really wanted to do it. Yeah. Hence you. Yeah. Bo- even borrow money. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and you know, after buying a ticket, how much do you give yourself to, to, Five to survive? $5 a day. $5 a day? <laughs> Was that enough? Arthur Fromer's uh, famous books on traveling for $5 a day. Oh, oh what book is that? There's a whole series, right? Uh, What's it called? Europe on $5 a day. Uh, New York on $5 a day. Whole series, oh, Arthur wow. Fromer. Arthur Fromer. So F uh, F R O M E M R O M M E R. I think. Okay. No, because now the the series of book is called Lonely Planet. There isn't such thing called. I mean, yeah. maybe there is, but yeah, not yeah, now. Yeah, not yeah, not that yeah, I'm aware yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you read that book, the, the, the series of book, and then you're like, okay, I can do it for five dollars a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there you go. You you yeah. prepare five dollars a day. You yeah. borrow some money yeah. uh, to buy the ticket, and and and, and you win. Yeah. Right. Um. Yeah, yeah. What 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 were some of the countries? What were the first few countries that you, you you went to, and and, and what how was the experience uh, then? And and before that, you the only other place that you traveled was Malaysia because that's Cameron. No, I went to, but in my student second year, I I, I organized a, a a trip to in to Java, where we, I think there were six of us, we. We hired a bus in Jakarta and then we drove all the way to the southern coast of Java and then ended up in Gilimanuk. 
cross over to Banjuwangi into Bali, had a wonderful time, came back on the north coast, and then flew back to Singapore. Yeah. So, so th- that was an incredible trip. Um, and that because I read a few books on, uh, on Indonesian history and culture, and I was enthralled by it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we went to see Borobudur, Prambanan, right? Visited uh, the ITB, Institute of Technology, Bandung. Met with the Professor Van Romont. We were treated like uh, visiting dignitaries, which we didn't realize why. So you were treated very nicely? By the government. By the government? Yes. We didn't realize this is 1961 or 62. So why? Ah. The trip to, by, by boat to Jakarta was paid for and sponsored by the Indonesian embassy in Singapore. So, well, so you, oh, you did write to the, the embassy because you need a visa to yeah. get there, right? Yeah. And uh, when we arrived, we were, we were received by the, by the governor of, of uh, Jakarta and ministers and so on. We were very flabbergasted. We didn't realize it, but it was much later that we realized it that it was part of the Indonesia Raya concept. They were indoctrinating us oh. to be f- favorable okay. towards the dominance of Indonesia, which later led to confrontasi, you see, 1965. Okay, wait, wait. So let me get this right a little bit. So they paid for your trip. Yeah. Because they tried to part of the trip, the rest of VPL. Oh, okay. So, yeah. okay, okay, part of the trip because they tried to impose they, 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 some ideas. They they I think they saw us as the the, the avant garde of okay. the new generation oh, wow. of, of of intellectuals who were favorable towards the dominance of Indonesia. Right, obviously because you want to take so a they trip want there. to cultivate us, lah. Oh, right, right. So we, well, we they become... Are, they are way far-sighted. <laughs> yeah, of course. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what, what were the first few countries that fascinated you, that, you know, made you want to go there? Because you... So, Indonesian, you, you, were, you went to Malaysia before and then Singapore, and now you bought this $10,000 KLM ticket around the world. Which were the first countries you went, went to? I went to India... Uh, well, first of all, uh, 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 both my my senior partners, William Lim and Lim Chong Kiat, yeah. who were in who were the partners of Malayan Architects Co Partnership, uh, they actually loaned me the money. Oh, okay. Uh, they they did a, another thing which was fantastic. They introduced me to all their friends on this whole trip, so I actually went and met them. And I learned a lot from them. Okay, so when I went to India, I met the 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 the, the main architects who were responsible for the for modern architecture in India in the in the sixties, right? So that was a really a powerful learning thing. I, I also under, began to understand the 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 kind of uh, the dichotomy between. Uh, 
mod- modernism and uh, and a concern for the tradition for the Indian traditions. So they were trying to marry the two, not quite successfully, but uh, not to be faulted for the attempt. Mm-hmm. And they know William and your other uh, friend Lim, know this Lim, Lim because in school, because they started with them ah. when they were in England. Okay, got it. Yeah. So they were all their good friends and they became my good friends. Yeah. Right. So after that, I went to Istanbul um, and then to Israel and then cross over the, the demilitarized zone carrying my hand, my luggage. Oh, back then it wasn't a backpack, right? It was yeah, like the, no, no the hard luggage. <laughs> were you were you dressed up nice in suits uh, and just, just very scruffy, very scruffy. <laughs> so walked across to Jordan. Yeah. And to do so, I had to be to get a visa. Okay. To get a visa, you have to declare that you are. What is it? You're not a Jew. So I had to go to a priest, Christian priest, okay. who certified that I'm not a Jew, I'm a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're not allowed into Jordan. Right. It's a tough process. Yeah, so I went into Jordan. So I, I could see the difference between the, the two economies, the two cultures, right? On one side, Israel is green. Farms are all green, irrigation. On the other side, it's all brown. Very clear. The How long did you stay in each of these countries? Were, were your only purpose just to meet some of these architects and then once you learn whatever you need to learn, you, you, you move on? Then uh, I also lived in a kibbutz in, in Israel where I learned to experience the, the early uh, socialism of, of Israel. Could you paint us a picture of this kibbutz? Okay. Uh, first, got to understand what is a kibbutz. A kibbutz is a, a kind of a idealistic uh, uh, human. It was an experiment in in a human community development. Okay, and all based around farming. Uh, so the book. Uh, what's the name of the writer? The the title of the book is called. Children of the Dream by Bruno Bettelheim. Very important book. Uh, which, uh, from which I learned a lot about the role of uh, philosophy and uh, human settlements, which, which I carry till today, right? In my ideas about, you know, the human settlement as an organism and not as a mechanism, okay? All, the, all that. Uh, and how the children of the dream uh, lost the dream because, because the kibbutz and all these idealistic uh, kind of humanist uh, human settlements did not understand the maturation cycle which I talked about earlier. They didn't understand the, that the young people have a constructed self. 
that re- that that is shaped by the surrounding environment, yeah. and they cannot they cannot stand the idealism in which they are required to enact their lives. They they want they want the Gucci, right? Yeah. They want the bright lights. Sure. That's the problem. Okay, so now now because in those days, I think those idealists did not understand that. Same thing happened in China. They didn't understand that. Uh, in India, they tried to keep that down. Right? But in Israel, they tried to change it, but it, it failed. So the kibbutz eventually became... Uh, abandoned. Not abandoned. They, they, they became rather... They became commercialized. Whereas in the beginning, it was an ideal kind of socialist... Uh, uh, self-help, self-organizing, local political, it was direct democracy. And actually, I mean, if you, if I were to just uh, dive back, because you brought it up about, you know, um, this younger generation likes their Prada, the Gucci, the bright lights, right? How would you then change the design philosophy around uh, communities or building uh, with, with that in mind? Yeah, so my idea of ru- ru- rural urbanization came out of all these kind of experiences and rethinking about the the failure of of uh, of uh, idealistic uh, human settlement ideas that you must offer viable choice. It cannot be a no choice situation. So in my big picture about you know. What kind of urbanization for the future of the world? Rural settlements are very crucial. And I think Jack totally agrees with me on this, um, where you need to have uh, organized uh, and economically viable human settlements in the villages. In the villages, But the young people don't want it. They want to go to the, big light, to the bright lights of the city. And so they should. That's my point. So the role of the big city has only got five functions left. All production can be decentralized, particularly with uh, with e- with uh, e-commerce and with uh, uh, internet. And as long as you have good roads, you 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 can uh, you can decentralize everything. And drones now. The production can be decentralized. Yeah. Uh, so the, fu- the, the only function left for the big city is, one, to be the center for the highest level of medical research and treatment. To be the second, to be the center for the highest level of scientific and academic research and teaching. So all the young fellows will come, see. To be the center for the highest level of uh, uh, finance and, and strategic uh, administration. Number four, to be the center for the highest level of logistics and uh, uh, transportation management. And number five, to be the center for the highest level of uh, uh, media production. Okay. Okay. These five naturally benefit from young people. So the future of the big city is the old people will tend to move out to the rural urban settlements 
where they have a nice environment, clean air, clean food, uh, good community cohesion, live close to nature, a slower pace of life. The young people will go to big cities for all those five things that uh, the city offers. And when they get married and have children, they will move back to the, city, to the countryside to raise their children because they don't want their children to be raised in hectic conditions. So this is the natural uh, ebb and flow of the human settlement of the future, which I am promoting and I'm, I'm, I'm pushing for. And which of the countries or which of the cities do you think uh, are a good example, maybe not perfect, yeah. of this uh, concept you're talking about? Okay. Whilst I define the, the broad parameters of, of this, uh, this, this form of urbanization, um, e-commerce, the impact of e-commerce is now actually making it happen. My PhD student uh, in China uh, did a, his PhD in China on a small village and he actually initiated the e-commerce uh, development of that village by simply buying a computer, a laptop, and giving it to the local uh, 60-year-old uh, shopkeeper, village shopkeeper, and he taught him how to use it. And because of that, the shopkeeper, Keeper has now hugely successful financially and also the whole village. Why? Because he could sell the village produce direct to the, to the nearest town, which is about 100 kilometers away, at urban prices, which he could not get in the village. Mm. So a pomelo of one renminbi is now sold for 10 renminbi. Mm. So what's happening now is that there's a reverse flow Young people, graduates from universities in China, higher education, not able to get jobs because of the economic downturn in the big cities, are moving into the small towns and villages to start businesses in the small towns and villages. So rural urbanization is happening because of circumstances, right? So I'm optimistic that uh, my theory of, uh, of, of uh, decentralized urbanization will happen. And, and it doesn't need to have any uh, push because it actually have already naturally because of e-commerce yeah. is happening. But the, but the tragedy is this. Uh, when the villagers get rich, what do they do? They build monster houses. Okay. You see, because they, are, they live within this overall uh, media space yeah. which promotes, you see, this, this, this kind of... Uh, Excessive consumption. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, this is where um, the human condition has to be considered. Right? What is it that will shift the human consciousness away from its addiction? to media, media generated images. Okay? So here is where, you see, one thing leads to another. 
here is where uh, I chance upon the, the 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 thinking of a very important contemporary philosopher called uh, Nancy Fraser. She's a political scientist and a political philosopher. Um, where she says that there should be a triple movement between uh, there's, there's a third there's a third pole in the in the in the twin poles of social economic development. Marketization has to be balanced. The double movement balance between marketization and social protection, and that is what the Lee Kuan Yew. Go King Street generation did in early Singapore. Marketization and social protection. But the third pole was missing. Emancipation. Without emancipation, the, power, the forces of, of, of marketization will override the impact of marketization on social protection will produce uh, 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 aberrant and toxic consumption patterns and because the third pole is missing. And how will we define emancipation? emancipation. Okay. Emancipation is the, 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 what we talked about earlier, right? The process by which the, the maturation of society oh. is enabled. Okay. Okay. Bearing in mind the inherent difficulties of that, so the so so Nancy Fraser's point is that the the, the three poles uh, uh, will produce will produce what she calls a triple movement. So what's but it's now? more than triple movement because it's three to the power of three. Because every relationship, right, deals on each other. Yeah, got it. It's very complex. And how how does uh? Uh, I think we are lacking now is the emancipation, emancipation right. which so, is so, so in Singapore right maturity now, of uh, the yeah, consciousness. Right. The issue in Singapore is actually the 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 reduction of fear through the democratization of decision making and and public participation. Without public participation, you cannot emancipate. Mm. Okay, so. What has happened in some of the villages in China now, because of the horrors of monster houses being built, <laughs> okay. they have formed their own village com- planning committee. Is it, would I be, if I were to Google monster houses, yeah, yeah. would I see some? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, okay. Yeah. It's, a, it's a term that, that someone came yeah, up with. No, I mean, it's, okay. it's a big house. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they have formed their own village committee yeah. to do town planning. Oh, okay. And they say that no house shall be more than three-story high. Fantastic. Right? That's emancipation because of, of political uh, uh, democratic participation. And, okay, I, 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 I get you there. Um, are there any other notable lessons that you have learned uh, among your travels? So you, you, you left off at Jordan. Yeah. Then, uh, then, then of course, I went to, then went to Egypt and, and, of course, look at pyramids and all that. Uh, Were you fascinated by the pyramids? Disappointed. Are you disappointed? <laughs> why is that so? I'll tell you why. It's a very strange thing. You were at Giza? Yeah. Okay. From a distance, they look huge. Okay. But as you get closer, they look smaller. 
Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, because of the angle of vision, right? Mm-hmm. When you stand at the base of the pyramid, it looks very short. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's a, a perceptual phenomenon that uh, you, ne- you never read about. I never never been, so I, I yeah, need to go. Any other books, you never hear this being discussed. Okay. Okay. Anyway, from there, I went to... So you, you were sad about the pyramids, yeah. then you left. I went to uh, Athens, where I had a very interesting time there. Uh, uh, joined a conference by Doxiadis, uh, who was a very important planning, urban planning philosopher, architect, but he's a planner. He built uh, Islamabad, for example. Right, he designed Islamabad. And uh, he formed a group called a, 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 a concept called Ikistics, which is a, a Greek word. Ikos is a dwelling or environment, right? Okay. So the science of human settlements is, 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 is the term he coined called Ikistics. Oh. Right, yeah. And it's a worldwide movement, still pre- present. I'm a fellow of the member of the Ikistics movement. Uh, yeah. I-K? E-K. Or E-K. I-S-D-I-C-S. Okay. Yeah. Link it up. So he worked out a whole methodology, a system of thinking at the different scales, Whoa. from micro to macro, at the different uh, uh, categories of, of spatial forms. Mm-hmm. And how the different components interact with each other. Very nice, nice thing. So that was my first encounter. And you enjoy with that. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And I had a big argument with him. Again. Okay. Yeah. Where I said, in your your five mod, five components, interactive five components, you miss out the sixth one, which is <laughs> politics. How can you talk about? the relationship of all these components, right, which is, you know, transport, buildings, uh, networks, um, economics, and so on, but no politics. So he said to me, young man, you go back to Asia, where you came from, and start Ikistics Asia with politics. Oh, okay. <laughs> which, oh, so he yeah. agreed... Yeah, yeah, he disagreed. He agreed, I mean, but he doesn't want to implement. Right, he wants you to do yeah, a case study yeah, yeah, first, yeah. and no, then no, no, he, he wanted me to implement it. Yeah, okay, I, and yeah, so I, I try to do that. <laughs> right, and actually, you uh, when in our conversation before, you brought up you know the the relationship and the important relationship of politics, um, with um architecture actually, yeah. and uh, maybe you want to just sort of like um paint us a picture of that relationship. The, 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 the useful operative uh, way to think about politics has been, def- has been defined by an American, a very conservative American uh, political scientist called Harold Laswell, uh, who, 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 who said, politics is the process by which it is decided who gets what, when, and how. That's very precise. Who gets what, when, when and, and how. how. Right. So the right. distribution of resources that's right. with uh, time. Right. So let's, let's apply that to Singapore. 
who gets what? Middle class gets what? And the upper class. The poor don't get much. Okay. When? Now. The poor, later. <laughs> How? Through handouts. The poor. Okay. For the rest, for the middle class, how? Housing. As asset. As asset. Uh, asset receptacle. Uh, okay. What, 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 and what? how? Shut up. For the Obey minute. what we are to- you are told. Okay. That's how you're going to get your benefits. Okay. So it's very clear. Harold as well is absolutely clear. Mm. That's politics, right? So if you don't understand that, you don't understand anything. And that relationship with architecture? Yeah, so you get, what do you get in Singapore? You get your public housing, right? And uh, if you are really wealthy enough, you get your good class bungalow, right? Mm -hmm. Whose asset value increases tremendously because you bring in the the big bucks from all over the world Mm. to buy up the houses here, which pushes the price up. How does it push the price up? Through tendering. And then what the state gets out of it? Property tax. Land value enhancement. For which the state owns 80% of the land. So the state benefits. Yeah. Which the state uses for handouts. To the poor. To the well, to the poor I mean, as well as the middle you know, everybody. Whatever lah. Okay. Right? So you get your Passion card for the old. <laughs> okay. So on, on specifically on architecture, bring in foreign architects. Okay, bring star architects. They call star it, right? architects. Right, right. The term, yeah. To to build uh, fancy buildings in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Why? To glorify the state, so that uh, the image of Singapore in relation to the West, is that you are the most progressive Asian country. Mm-hmm. And the image to the West, to the East, is that you are the most advanced of the East Asian countries. Mm-hmm. So, that gives Singapore a, a prestige, a brand name, mm. from which Singapore can then begin to export. One of its major exports would be urban systems. So, we're going to build new towns all over India, China, China, wherever, mm-hmm. right? Because the architecture of Singapore is its emblem. What is this? Emblem of, of evidence of, of, of evidence of success. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, local architects all dying. Eating potatoes. <laughs> eating no, I don't know potatoes. Okay. Maybe roti prata. Roti prata. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. I mean, I guess, I guess my my anger was, was that you know, like, like knowing that knowing knowing politics as what you put it, like how then can one architect uh, use it um, to their uh, as a tool in a toolkit uh, to be successful or to change the world or to change the nation? Oh, so all the the big four, oh, the big four architectural firms, right? are all on very good, friendly terms with the, with the politics, right? Mm. So they are 
regarded by foreign investors as reliable. They have an inside track. We don't know exactly what the inside track is made of. What do you mean by inside track? They know people, right? Oh, okay, okay, okay. A relationship. Right. Yeah, relationship, sure. right? Okay. Which uh, would be beneficial in some way, which we don't know, but uh, we can count on it. All right. So the, the big four benefit from the, their close association with the powers that be. Mm. That's how architecture is affected by politics directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, now that we move into to politics, I have a, so much question to ask you, but I'm just going to cut short a little bit. I think we might need to do a round two on this. I think we have to stop here. I have to go. Uh, uh, yeah, but let me let me just uh, bring out one, maybe one last question, uh, because when 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 I asked you about <laughs> your proudest moment in your life, and and then and you told me that you're being invited by our late PM Lee Kuan Yew to go to his office, and oh. then having an argument uh, uh, at the office. So would you want to um, tell me a little bit about that day and you know, how it came to be? I wouldn't say that's the proudest day of my life, Mick. One of the... Um, I, I could just as well say it was the most disastrous day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What happened there? What happened is that uh, I had written an essay called Identity, Housing Identity and Nation Building. Uh, where I propose that uh, for nation building, we have to build our housing in such a way that people identify with it. And by identifying with where they live, uh, they would then identify with with the nation. I mean, he liked the idea. So uh, anyway... A copy of that essay was sent to him by George Thompson. George Thompson was the director of Political Studies Center. Um, one of Lee Kuan Yew's uh, confidant, a Fabian socialist, a good friend of mine. Uh, so he read the paper and then called me up to, to meet him, to discuss the paper, which I did. Uh, there was a funny prelude to it. You went to the Istana? No. Oh, his no. his office was in was on the second floor of the city hall in those days. And if you looked at the, the, the facade of City Hall, you will see that there's one window there that has got a stainless steel frame around it, which is different from all the rest. That is the frame for the bulletproof glass. Oh okay. Yeah. Is it still there now? I I don't think okay, so. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah. So I went there, and then there was a little waiting area. Yeah. His personal private secretary sits there. There's a there's a aquarium, fish aquarium oh. between where I sat on on a chair oh, like okay. this, and and the the PBS was there behind that thing, right? Okay. Very Spartan. Right. A lot of fish in in the aquarium. Yeah, yeah, aquarium. So I waited for quite a while. The man was busy. <laughs> and then uh, there was an ashtray in front of the coffee table. There was an ashtray. Oh, okay. With a cigarette butt in it. I noticed it. Yeah. But before that, as I came in, uh, Sankaran, 
the name of the PBS said, Mr. Lee would appreciate if you did not smoke in his presence. I said, yeah, I don't smoke. <laughs> so I sat down, noticed the butt. After a while, Sankaran came in, he saw the butt. He said, I told you, I thought I told you not to smoke. <laughs> Which really got me irate. <laughs> I said to him, if you don't know how to housekeep and clean your ashtrays, right? Don't put the blame on me. <laughs> he, he turned on his heel and left in a half. <laughs> so that was my prelude to my meeting with the great man. Wow. Sankaran uh, is the PA, no? PA. Oh, the PA, Sankaran. Okay. <laughs> I don't know where he's in now. Okay. Then, uh, after a while, he came in again. Uh, Sankaran said, yeah, you, 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 please go in now. He okay. will see you. Okay. So I went in. I was very surprised. The, 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 he was wearing white shirt, short sleeve, white pants. His face, his arms was all red. All oh, red? Drinking. Ah, okay. This was this was late morning. Late morning. Yeah, yeah. Not not sunburn. No, I can't. I don't know. Okay, maybe sunburn. But all red. Yes, very okay. red. Yeah. Okay. Which were very striking. Yeah. So I asked. He said, "Yeah, I read your paper. Very interesting. You know." And then he said, "Somewhere in your paper, you talked about." preserving the Malay kampongs. I totally disagree. He said, there's a den of iniquity. You know, backward. Den of iniquity. Yeah. A biblical phrase. <laughs> backward and uh, we must get rid of all of them. What was his argument? Back, because it's backward. Okay, okay. You see? So I disagreed with him. I said, no, it's a Gotong Royong spirit. We must preserve for our future and so on, right? The kampong culture and all that. After half an hour of back and forth, he suddenly stood up and says, no, I have, I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So that was it. That was my meeting with him. And then, and then, um, you, then the PA came in and asked you to leave. No, of course, I, I, I came out and then I walked off, right? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Then a week later, George Thompson called me. He said, the man wants you to join the party and stand for election. Because he wants an architect in cabinet. Oh. Mm. I was 28 years old. But even then, I sensed that I cannot, that I'm, I'm temperamentally unsuitable. I... I, I, I I cannot subject myself to party discipline. I'm a free mind, you know. I cannot, I cannot tahan this kind of thing. You know? So I wrote back to him and said, no. Yeah. So you type a letter to you and you, you type back. And say, no, no, no. He didn't oh. type a letter to me. Oh, no. I told George, no, no, I'm not going to, to do this. You know, I can't. And I left it at that. A couple of years later, Spur members began to say that they were, began to resign from Spur. All the academic members started to resign. And uh, the reason they gave was that they were told by the 
by the government that if you continue to be a member of SPUR, you will not get any help in your research projects. No information will be accorded to you. I was very angry. I was president of SPUR. So I wrote him a long letter. That this is unacceptable. This is bad. No, don't do it. That was that. So uh, years later, I asked George, also oh, what did he say? He thought the less of you. <laughs> that was it. Oh, wow. When you, would you even consider, because it was, it was a privileged position yeah. that you were being offered at a very young age, at yeah. 28. Yeah. What were some of the you know, conversations that lead you up to making that decision? In your mind, I mean. No, very clear. I cannot. I cannot be. I cannot be his henchman. Right? I, I. I cannot be a yes man, right? It's very clear. He wants a yes man. That's his nature, but that's not my nature. So. Double <laughs> All right, we're going to leave it at that. Thank you okay. so much for your time. All we're right. going to definitely going to do a round two. I barely only finished page one and maybe two hours. What's up, people? It's over. As usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on our website, brianvictor.com, Brian for Y. And if you have any misfits you'd like to hear from, feel free to drop me an email. Thank you again for giving me your precious time to listen to this episode. And if you're hearing a lot of uh, uh, shouting around the back end, that's just because um, um, there's uh, little little kids running around over here and um, parents uh, telling their kids how amazing they are and they certainly truly are amazing. Um, yeah, and this th- that's it. Signing off. Have a fantastic week ahead. Mm-hmm.